0: Welcome to countries that don't exist anymore and welcome back to part 2 of the Mughal Empire. Last time we saw the rise of the empire from a smaller and shaky string of conquests to a mighty empire. But can the Mughal Empire keep getting stronger and last forever? Find out on this episode of Countries That Don't
1: Exist Anymore. They used to exist but not anymore. Now you know what this podcast is for, is Countries That Don't Exist Anymore.
0: In 1657, Shah Jahan became ill, which sparked a civil war of succession between his sons. Unfortunately for Shah Jahan, he recovered. Unfortunate because his son, Aurangzeb, had already triumphed and didn't seem to be willing to give up the victory for dear old dad, so had him imprisoned instead at the Fort of Agra until he died in 1666. (laughs) Kids, eh? (laughs) If imprisoning his popular father wasn't enough... Aurangzeb went on to prove himself a bit of a blunderer. Fancying himself a bona fide orthodox, he then set about putting everybody else's nose out of joint. He got rid of court musicians and artists. He refused to sit at the window because he thought it wasn't an Islamic practice.
1: He banned the wearing of gold at court. I mean, it's hardly Nuremberg, is it? What, no gold? Do, does the world need any more salt bays? Or any salt bays at all? No one needs salt bays. No one. But he also started taxing non-Muslims. Okay, big deal. Didn't, didn't he realise that most of his subjects weren't Muslim?
0: Yeah, but he was bound to be right anyway because he was following God's will or something.
1: Ah, the religious catch-22. Yeah, okay,
0: jail-free card. He clamped down on the practices of the majority Hindu population and viciously put down subsequent rebellions. Not particularly wise, since the empire had only been a success since it was based on a network of alliances. And one of the key alliances were the Rajputs a Hindu warrior power. But, as with most things in life, it's not that simple. While he sort of nudged in the direction of Sharia law, it was never wholesale imposed. He also tore down a few Hindu temples and built mosques, including a huge one in Lahore. But before we do a... Oh look, it's Oliver Cromwell! ...about him, a lot of the Hindu temples were related to political feuds, not religious ones. And the mosques were as much to outdo his father's buildings as some statement about religious zeal. For all our... It's religious discord that's going to do the empire in. That we've been setting up over this episode. Here's the twist. It was overextension all along. Mm -hmm. What really obsessed Aurangzeb wasn't religious stuff, but military stuff. Mm -hmm. The Mughal Empire extended south into the Deccan. And things had never been particularly settled there. And the question for any ruler of a place that doesn't much want to be ruled by you is, how much do you want to push it? So making the inevitable comparison with, guess what it is,
1: The Roman Empire. The Roman Empire. Oh!
0: Everybody wants to be the Roman Empire! This is like Parthia. At the very height of its powers, Trajan extended the empire into Parthia, but Parthia was a place where the locals really didn't take too kindly to the Roman Empire, so much so that his successor Hadrian took the sound decision to move the borders right back. Yeah, it wasn't a popular move at the time, but it did save the Romans a ton of blood and treasure that they sorely needed to defend their many, many borders elsewhere. But rather stubbornly, Aurangzeb didn't do something similar he obsessed about the problem of the Deccan. Rather than stopping to smell the roses, saying you can't win them all, and generally taking some hymn time, he instead moved his entire court south in 1681 so he could give his military campaign in the Deccan 100% of his meddling incompetence. The problem for the Mughals was that their approach to military strategy was to steamroll their way through the other armies, throwing money at the problem until it got out of the way. But this didn't work in the Deccan where they were facing up against the fast-moving, hit-and-run cavalry units of the Maratha. According to one Jacobean traveller, the Maratha-like
1: cavalry were Naked, starved rascals armed only with lances and long swords two inches wide. But who were brilliant at Surprising and ransacking. They were the ultimate guerrilla fighters, carefully picking
0: key economic targets like warehouses, ports and palaces in a conscious effort to try and destroy the Mughal economy. They were so successful that their leader, Shivali, was appointed as Hindu emperor or Majapada. Ed?
1: God, don't ask me, mate. Mm.
0: And the reincarnation of Vishnu, no less. Aurangzeb was less impressed, calling him a... Mountain rat. When they caught Shivali's son, Sambhaji... They made him wear a stupid hat and ride around on a camel. Doesn't sound too bad. It doesn't sound too bad, does it, Ed? But then they brutally tortured him for a week, put nails into his eyes, cut out his tongue, and flayed his skin off with tiger claws before finally putting him to death. Then they threw his body to the dogs and stuffed his head with straw before mounting it onto the Delhi gate.
1: Oh, that's the bad bit. That's the
0: bad bit. Mm. And with the court relocating to the south, rebellions in the north became all the more powerful. By the time of Aurangzeb's death in 1707, the massive Mughal Empire, which at this time was at its height, was losing money fast, trying to put out fires throughout its sprawling land. The Mughals had been at their most stable when their nobility were in the pay of the court and all power flowed downhill from the emperor. But in the face of an imperial center that couldn't foot the bill and local unrest, nobles were becoming increasingly independent. Meanwhile, there was a peasant rebellion among seats of the Punjab, and banditry across the land was endemic. Even Aurangzeb's son, Prince Akbar, raised the flag of rebellion against his father. On his deathbed, Aurangzeb acknowledged his failure.
1: I have not been the guardian and protector of the empire. The past is gone and there is no hope for the future. The whole Imperial army is like me, bewildered, perturbed, separated from God, quaking like quicksilver. I fear my punishment. I think he's having one of his bad days, Phil. Good days and bad days.
0: And after him, things went downhill further, believe it or not. Mm. Rebellions grew in strength. Weak and powerless emperors were too busy stabbing each other in the eyes strangling each other's mothers a very boy. or pushing each other's fathers off precipices whilst on their elephants ah! 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 all things that actually happened and it's not so much that Aurangzeb just had a bunch of useless sprogs It's more that he was so obsessed with conquest that he completely neglected to give them any emperor training or any government posts of any authority. Things were so bad for the new emperor Shah Alam Bahadur Shah. That he couldn't
1: afford a good name?
0: He couldn't even enter his own capital of Delhi. Blimey. Having to wait five years after his own coronation for things to settle down. And even then political intrigue and plots were rife. In 1719, four different emperors occupied the peacock throne of the Mughals and there was much stabbing of guts and poking out of eyeballs. In the palace, generals started pulling the strings from their puppet emperors. The myth of the all-powerful Mughal Shah was well and truly over. In response to weaknesses in the middle, local governors of the empire started ruling their own backyards. Then kingdoms started to break away from the failing empire under Maratha, Sikh, and Hindu rulers. Even the British East India Company was getting in on the action. The empire was less a power, more of an excuse. All of the new kings claimed to be ruling in the name of the Mughal Empire, but that was just to legitimise their own power grabs. All this was very, very bad timing. While the empire was losing out on revenue, trade and manufacturing was at an all-time high. The traditional landed classes were losing their grip as a new merchant class rose to prominence. Cotton, silk and other goods were highly sought after, hence the Europeans steaming in to take a piece of the action. And with the imperial family in Delhi unable to foot the bill, artists and architects went off to find work in the successor states with new money merchants, leaving further Mughal projects to look decidedly scaled down. Precious stones and marbles were replaced by bricks and MDF. It was an Ikea
1: golden age. Hey, look it, look here! It's got a nice uh, flat-packed Taj Mahal. Oh, look at that. Only 100,000 pieces. Well, it only take us a couple of Bengali days. Yeah.
0: One interesting development which arose from the general anarchy was the rise of banking in India. See, not everywhere was peeling away from the empire. In fact, prosperous Bengal kept paying into the imperial treasury, but due to banditry, Bengali leaders didn't trust sending any taxes by road. Their solution? Banking. The Mughal emperors turned to the Jagat Seths, Who were granted the title Bankers of the World to move money about virtually, since they had their branches everywhere. The Seths were like the Indian Rothschilds.
1: In that they were like a cabal of lizards. In that they were a powerful banking dynasty. But could they also have been lizards? That's not for us to say. But what do you think? Let's keep the conversation open and respectful of all views and monetized. All right,
0: Russell Brand. Perhaps a downside to this, if you're a fan of Indian independence, is that another big customer of the Seths were the East India Company, who were borrowing huge amounts of money to fund their trading and expansion activities. In fact, when Mughal governor Dawood Khan complained about the East India Company's unregulated behavior in Madras, which the East India Company had established as a base, The East Indian Company replied that they had paid a lot of tax, employed a lot of people, and if the Mughals didn't value them, they could move their operations to someone who did, causing the Mughals to back off.
1: Ah, it's the same script multinational companies have been using ever since.
0: And ever shall. But in the face of anarchy, the East India Company did offer Indian merchants something like stability. While areas of Bengal were constantly being ravaged and plundered by the Marathas, East India Company towns seemed safe and prosperous by comparison. so it does work. Even the marauding Marathas seemed unwilling to square up to the organised muskets and artillery of the East India Company. And meanwhile, the Royal Navy protected trade routes, ensuring access to markets abroad. One Indian-Persian merchant, while deciding that the East India Company were still basically barbarians, conceded some good points too. (laughs) The English have no arbitrary dismissal, and every competent person keeps his job until he writes his own request for retirement or resignation. More remarkable still is that they take part in most festivals and ceremonies of Muslims and Hindus, mixing with the people. They pay great respects to accomplished scholars of whatever sect. It was almost like the East India Company was offering the kind of tolerance and security that the Mughal Empire had provided at its height. But bear in mind that this was still the mid-18th century. This was a time of racial intermarriage and relative tolerance. We haven't yet reached the time where the East India Company had really started to asset strip India, or when the Indian people were yet subject to the full frontal racism of Victorian imperialists. So while many areas were going to rack and ruin, East India Company bases like Calcutta offered security and lower taxes than the empire. And as refugees fled there seeking safety, the city of Calcutta's population tripled in a decade. In an East India town, you can make a stash, but in the Mughal state, you can't keep your cash. In an East India town of opportunity, you can get super drunk and pay no VAT. No if, why, when. Meanwhile, the Mughal Empire was collapsing as quickly as a badly put-together flat-pack IKEA Taj Mahal. And its emperors seemed to be doing bugger all about it. Emperor Muhammad Shah spent very little time worrying about what was going on and instead dedicated himself to watching plays and eating dinners. He barely looked up from his programme when the Marathas invaded its heartland in 1728 and defeated its great general, the Nizam-ul-Mulk. Unfortunately, this was a taste of things to come. Sensing the general disarray, the Persians invaded, and with 80,000 troops in 1739
1: under Nadir Shah, a former shepherd turned ruler. So, Nadir, you're applying to become Persian emperor, but your CV tells me... You were a shepherd. Now, what makes you think you can control a large group of men? Come by. Come by.
0: That means go left, men. You've got the job. Their musketeers and gun-carrying horsemen were able to rout a Mughal army said to be one million strong, and there was only 80,000 of them. The crowning humiliation was when Nadir Shah captured the dinner-loving Muhammad Shah by inviting him to dinner and then just didn't let him go.
1: Well, thank you for inviting me to dinner, Nadir. Uh, Tell me, what are we finishing with this evening? Mm, Prison for you. Oh, what did you say? Oh, I said
0: tiramisu. Hmm. Don't worry, you'll get your just desserts. Yummy. Delhi was plundered and its people were massacred. The Nizam al-Mulk asked Nadir Shah to stop the carnage, which he agreed to, but with the proviso that he was paid one billion rupees the equivalent of £13 billion. So the Nizam basically did the looting of his own people, systematically stripping the empire of 300 years of accumulated wealth. Bugger. And once the Nadir Shah had sort of conquered everything and extracted all the wealth, he went home, since he had no interest in ruling the place. He was actually only after a war chest to fight his real enemies, the Ottomans and the Russians. So he loaded up his treasure wagons with all his loot including the world's biggest diamonds and the actual peacock throne. And off he went. And after the dust had settled, Muhammad Shah was allowed to go back to ruling. But ruling exactly what? A contemporary poet wrote,
1: Nobles are reduced to the status of grass cutters. Palace dwellers do not possess even ruins to give them shelter.
0: Traditionalists blamed all this woe on decadence as usual. Conveniently ignoring that much of the damage of the empire had been done under the most orthodox emperors. Yeah, get out of that one. Muhammad Shah's answer to all this was to ignore everything and continue pleasure-seeking, although that was difficult without a comfortable seat. He didn't even have the ancestral peacock throne to sit on anymore. Still, he didn't let that bother him and spent his days hunting and enjoying his gardens. Everybody seems to think I'm lazy I don't mind, gardens amaze me They invade our empire under orders But I prefer digging borders Please don't spoil my day I bought a spade and the Outside activities were probably his best bet since almost everybody stopped sending money back to Delhi and the Mughal state was now properly bankrupt. And since there was no money, they couldn't afford an army. You can't have an empire without an army. Stands to reason. And then the Afghans invaded on four occasions starting in the 1750s. But bad times for the centre often means good times for the periphery. The Maratha the Rohilla Afghans, the Sikhs of the Punjab, the Jats of Deeg, and the Barapur all carved out independent states from the empire. Jaipur, Jodhpur, Udapur, and Rajput no longer had to pay and could now feather their own nests. Culture and creativity sprung up in all those regions. Dark Age or Renaissance? I guess it depends on where you're standing. And now on ITV Lunchtime, it's time for Dark Age or Renaissance with Bob Holness.
1: Welcome to Dark Age or Renaissance. So, Kirsty from Streatham. Yeah? Is it Dark Age or Renaissance? What? Um, guys, I think we might need to rethink this tea time format.
0: But it wasn't other Indian rulers who filled the power vacuum left by the failing Mughal Empire. No, it was two European trading companies. The East India Company and the French Compagne des because French people don't use consonants, yeah, ever.
1: they're not into it, at all.
0: The British East India Company... That's who, more like it. Yeah, the British East India Company, who for years had to mind their step and keep their heads down, had seen how easily the Persians had defeated the Mughals and thought... Yeah, we'll have a bit of that. Governor Thomas Saunders of Madras
1: reckoned that... Any European nation with a tolerable force may overrun the whole country. But why did he think that? Well, he had seen it
0: firsthand at the Battle of Adyar in 1746. During one of Britain and France's almost constant wars, the French had taken Madras with some well-drilled African colonial troops. Since Madras was technically on their land, the Mughals decided to steam in with 10,000 troops to take it back. But despite outnumbering the French 10 to 1, the Mughals were beaten back. The Mughals lost 300 men in the process. The French, are said to have suffered no casualties. So what's going on, Phil? Well, Ed, the answer is probably technology. Oh. Because Europe had been warring interminably, as usual, their technology had come on leaps and bounds. Half a century before, the Mughals would have been facing an army equipped with pikes. Now they had flintlock muskets and were trained to produce a barrage of continuous fire with field artillery to back them up. Even when the Nizan al-Mulk died, his sons fought over his inheritance using French mercenaries and French arms. And French guns. And a weak and fragmented India found its lands piece by piece being swallowed up by pesky European armies. But let's talk about the East India Company a bit more. Why not? At the heart of the East India Company were ambitious rotters like Robert Clive. Who was Robert Clive? Clive was an ambitious young man on the make. Lots of them about in these days. Mm -hmm. The closest thing we
1: have to a school report was what his uncle said of him when he was just seven years old. He is out of all measure addicted to fighting, which gives his temper a fierceness and imperious, so that he flies out upon any trifling occasion.
0: As a teenager, he ran protection rackets in his hometown of Market Drayton. (laughs) True. (laughs) Wow. After corruptly frittering away his money on a rotten borough, What is a robber button? Clive entered Parliament, but it didn't last long. Needing cash and fast, he fled to India. This was the calibre of men that the Mughal Empire would have to deal with. Robert Clive came sailing into a situation not of his making, but the opportunist, he was keen to take advantage of it. Bengal was then being ruled by the Mughal Nawab, or Governor, Alivari Khan who'd been brought to power thanks to the backing of the Jagat Seths. His domains included the East India Company hub of Calcutta, and
1: Khan generally didn't seem bothered by their presence. He said, The Europeans are like a hive of bees whose honey you might reap benefit but if you disturb their hive they might sting you to death. During the various Anglo-French
0: wars that were raging, as ever, the English took the opportunity to rebuild the fortifications of Calcutta, but crucially, without the permission of the Nawab. When told to tear down the fortifications, the British told Aliverdi Khan that...
1: We have to defend ourselves against the French, and they started it anyway, and we've been here for like 100 years, and we've never missed rent once, so I don't even know what you're having to go at us for, because that's actually well rude aliverdi khan advised his nephew saraj who was also
0: his heir to base his rule on agreement and obedience with only decline and regret stemming from a path of quarrel and hostility unfortunately aliverdi khan died in 1756 and his famously difficult nephew siraj seemed intent on the quarrel and hostility path what this translates to was the attack of an english factory compound at Kazim-Bazir where 30,000 Mughal troops surrounded a garrison of 200 until its commander, William Watts, surrendered and was humiliated in front of Siraj, being forced to hug his feet and repeat, I am your slave! I am your slave! He then took an army of 70,000 and, after fierce fighting, took Calcutta, looted it and said it would be renamed Alinagar. The East India Company troops had put up a good fight, despite the fact that many of them were totally inebriated and, by Mughal standards, they were treated quite well initially. This was until a fight broke out between the English and Indian troops, and so the Company men were rounded up and imprisoned in a very confined room in which some of them suffocated. When this story spread back to Britain, this room gained the name The Black Hole of Calcutta And lived long in the English imperial mind as the very height of cruelty and depravity.
1: Um, didn't we do some cruelty and depravity though too?
0: Yeah, but that's not how British newspapers work.
1: Yeah, that's very true.
0: And this was just when Robert Clive arrived in India. His orders had been strictly to attack the French. But hearing the news, he instead gathered up some forces and raided Mughal settlements. His troops were effective despite being totally
1: drunk. Everyone's totally drunk all yeah, the time. Yeah, it's, it's incredible that anyone got anywhere. I know, it's one way to get through it. Well, is either they're totally drunk or they're dying from scurvy. But as soon as Robert Clive loaded people in a ship, like half of them died on the way over. Yeah. It's amazing that they keep going. That they do anything.
0: When an English ship blew a hole in the side of the Mughal fort, one drunk company man ran in waving a sword and declared, ''The place is mine!'' To exact revenge, Siraj gathered a force of 60,000 and marched on Calcutta, but stopped short north of the city to camp. Rather than trying to come to terms, Clive attacked under the cover of fog, his line infantry advancing and firing meticulously while being supported by the mobile artillery. This so terrified Siraj that the Nawab legged it. The peace that was signed after the Treaty of Alingar proved to be a turning point. Not only was the company's dominion over their territory recognised, but their interests were also protected. It's a damning indictment of uh, Siraj's forces that they, of 60,000 that they can be overcome by drunk idiots. Yeah. Anyway, now weak and unpopular, Siraj was so despised that the Jagath Seth funded Robert Clive and his army to remove Siraj from power. And this happened at the Battle of Plassey in 1757, where Clive's forces of hundreds, who were outnumbered 20 to one this time, advanced and routed the Mughal army of 35,000 infantry, 15,000 cavalry, and 53 pieces of artillery overseen by French experts. Once again, the Indian cavalry were no match for the power of the European war machine, but Clive had some things going for him too. For one thing, he was in cahoots with one of Siraj's generals who retreated from the battlefield, taking his forces with him at an appointed time. Sneaky. For another thing, one, Major Kilpatrick, defied Clive's orders and took a force to capture Mughal artillery, thus leaving the English to take potshots at the Mughals uncontested. But battles are fought on morale, and this was no one-sided massacre. Yes, the East India Company lost 22 soldiers compared to the Mughals 500, but it was really the fact of how easily the Mughal armies were willing to give up the fight when they felt things weren't going their way. And this is probably a reasonable metaphor for the state of the Mughal Empire at this time. The result of all this, the East India Company rule was cemented. The Mughal Empire effectively lost one of the last remaining profitable areas of their empire, which the East India Company then went about totally asset stripping, a model that the British Empire would stick rigidly to in later years. In one medium-sized skirmish, Robert Clive became one of the richest men in Europe. He was given a peerage and, according to the Salisbury Journal, his wife's ferret wore a necklace worth a quarter of a million pounds. His wife's
1: ferret? Isn't that what they used to call the vajazzle?
0: So Clive was triumphed. Suraj was hacked to bits by assassins and a puppet was installed in Bengal by the East India
1: Company and the
0: Jawat Seths,
1: leading Clive to observe, I'm fully persuaded that after the Battle of Plassey, we might have appropriated the whole country to the company through the terror of English arms and their influence. The Mughal Empire is greatly broken and its total ruin has been prevented only by the sums of money sent to Delhi, from bengal basically uh robert clive is just observing the same thing that about three other people so far this episode has i reckon we
0: could take him. after further conflict bengal was then conceded to robert clive in 1765 allowing the east india company to tax and govern directly the east india company continued to be way more than a bunch of angry bees for the mughals and in fact financially supported factions taking on the empire again sneaky. In 1803, the East India Company took a step further and did exactly what everybody else seemed to be doing at the time, they invaded Delhi. But this wasn't even a war on the Mughal Empire, or whatever was left of it. This was a war on the Marathas, who already controlled the city and already controlled the emperor. But both sides proclaimed they were there to safeguard the emperor, old story. By this time, one Shah Alam II. A saying of his time had it that
1: The Empire of Shah Alam is from Delhi to Palam.
0: Palam being
1: a suburb of Delhi. In the same way, Countries That Don't Exist Anymore is one of London's best podcasts between Streatham and Streatham Hill. It certainly is. The reality
0: is that the Mughal Empire had no power, but almost every faction and nawab up and down India borrowed the legitimacy to rule from the continuing existence of an emperor, which is why coins were continued to be minted with his face on it, although everybody really knew that the empire was basically over. In fact, the empire was finally put to bed in its last vestiges with the outbreak of what was known as the Indian Mutiny of 1857, now thought of as India's first war of independence. While the causes are many and various and too much to get into here, but you can take it as read that by this time many Indians had had more than enough of the British. And the reluctant figurehead of this rebellion? 81 year old Mughal ruler Bahadur Shah Zafar, who basically just wanted a milky cup of chai in an early bedtime. Bahadur was proclaimed emperor of all India, and only the Sikhs didn't want to go along with this, as
1: they didn't want to return to a Muslim state. I mean, you kill one of their most famous mystics and they never get over it. I'm gonna let it go, guys. God. Let it go.
0: When the rebellion was pretty brutally put down, Zafar's potential heirs were shot and he was set off to exile in Rangoon, where he died a few years later. But the throne wasn't totally vacant for long. In 1877, there was a new emperor, or to be precise, empress. Queen Victoria was declared empress of India, mainly because her daughter Adelaide had just become empress of Prussia. And Victoria hated being upstaged. (laughs) Ha 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 ha, now who's empress, Pioch? The British Raj basically just swiped many of the imperial structures of the Mughals to rule India in a Mughal manner, and ceremonies from the court of the Mughals made their way back to British royal family too. And the Mughal influence lived on. Although they were Sunni, many Shia Muslim rulers continued to view the Mughals as the apex of civilization.
1: But what was the legacy of the Mughal
0: Empire? Well, we can still see the great impact of the Mughals on India in art, architecture and the blending of peoples and traditions into a deliciously rich and spicy melting pot.
1: God, I really fancy a curry roundabout now. Take a
0: look at the Taj Mahal, the Agra Fort, Humayun's tomb. These are still marvels even now. Architecture and art positively flourished under Akbar, Jahangir and Shah Jahan. In the royal workshops, Iranian masters work with Hindu and Muslim master craftsmen of the north to develop something very much Mughal. And we still have some of the illuminated manuscripts, literally. You can see some of them in the VNA in London or the MAK in Vienna. They combine Iranian detail and the use of precious metals with the Hindustani celebration of the natural world, divine meets approachable. Much like the Mughal monarch sat at his window every morning. This blend also saw great Hindu texts turned into works of art. At its best, the Muslim Mughals not only tolerated other cultures, they venerated them. Akbar had a translation bureau tasked with
1: creating Persian versions of Sanskrit masterpieces. In doing so, he hoped... Those who display hostility may refrain from doing so and may seek after the truth. When Akbar had his own Akbanama commissioned... It was
0: a reflection of the kind of state he wanted, even showing European influences from the Jesuit mission he allowed in his court. Art, architecture and ornaments are important for another reason. They reflect the stability and wealth of the Mughal court. So while we have treasures from the Mughals at the peak of their power, these drop off when they have their rulers that become more austere, more orthodox, more obsessed with conquest, and less able to hold their empire together. I see an empire and I want it painted gold Illuminated manuscripts can never be too bold I see the girls walk by, my parrot makes a point Easy keeping quiet when your beak's out of joint No more will mine, you must be built simple or small Let's make the Taj Mahal to justify my role Maybe we won't fade away and be lost to history Celebrate the Mughal might, not East India company Thank you, listeners, for tuning into this two-parter on the almighty Mughal Empire. Next time, we're delighted to be joined by author and fellow podcaster Annie Rud and he's going to be talking to us about something we barely covered in this episode, but a very fascinating part of Indian history, the Deccan. So join us all next time on... Countries that don't exist anymore, they used to exist but not anymore. Now you know what this podcast is for, it's countries that don't exist.